Welcome to Grace to All. I'm your host, Paul Gray. You've probably used the word grace, sang Amazing Grace, or said grace at a meal. But did you know that God's grace is way better than we can even imagine, and that you and all people already have an abundant supply of God's unlimited amazing grace? Today, we're going to hear the truth about God's amazing grace to all people. So, sit back, relax, and prepare to be inspired and awakened to the amazing treasures that you already possess. This is truth that you can handle. Hello again, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me today for another episode of Grace to All with Paul Gray. I wonder how many of you have ever had an actual experience that contradicted what you'd been taught in school. I was thinking about this, and one that came to my mind, I had a friend who was a band leader, one of the last famous big band leaders. His name was Jay McShann. Charlie Parker played in his band, and he had a great band, a big band that came out of Kansas City in the late 1930s. And one time he was playing, I got to play with him in a lot of different instances, and he was playing at my place, the jazz place, and he played a particular song. And I said, oh, you borrowed that from so-and-so. And he said, no, actually, I wrote that. I said, no, everybody knows that that's so-and-so's theme song. And he said, well, <laughs> he said, I wrote it and I wasn't smart enough. I didn't have the people with me showing me what to do to copyright it or anything. And this other person who also had a famous band took it and recorded it and copyrighted it and made it their theme song and they made all the money off of it. Now, I, I don't say that to put down the person who took that. That was kind of a common place back in those days with that group of people. A lot of them just didn't have the experience to know what to do. And so that's what happened. But at any rate, when you bought a piece of music, uh, that song you saw, it was written by so-and-so. When you bought a record that somebody recorded it, it said it was written by so-and-so. When you take a jazz history course, as a friend of mine taught for many years, they would teach you that so-and-so wrote that song. But when you actually knew the person who wrote it and then could verify it, as I did with some other people, that what I'd been taught wasn't true. We were talking about this with a group of friends the other night, and I asked that question, and one of them said, well, yeah, they were their school teacher, their retired school teacher, and they taught first grade for years, and one of the things that they used were flashcards all the time to help kids uh, know how to pronounce words and to remember words, and there's some words that this teacher said you just can't teach phonetically with phonics, but flashcards worked, and she had done it for 40 years, and she knew they worked. Well, somebody came along uh, in the school district she was in with a new study and said, no, flashcards aren't the best thing to do. They don't work. You need to do this other completely different thing. And she knew from her experience that this other completely different thing would not work. And they did a test thing with her classroom and another classroom in the district. And her classroom she taught, as she did with flashcards, the other one didn't use flashcards, and they used this new technology. And at the end of the year, sure enough, it came out that uh, her classroom, <laughs> teaching as they always had with flashcards, worked. The kids' scores were much higher than those who tried the new technology. So she had had an actual experience over the course of 40-some years of knowing what was right and what worked. Someone came along and said, no, that's not right, and they were not correct. Many times we're taught things that aren't 
actually correct. And it takes an experience, like my friend the teacher had, it takes an experience to get us to cross that line from just believing what we've always believed. And I found that, spiritually speaking, that experience will always trump intellectual learning. My friend Richard Rohr wrote on October 14th in his daily email, his blog. It was titled, The Coexistence, Beliefs and Experience. And he starts out by saying, we cannot know God only by thinking thoughts. He said, unfortunately, for much of Christianity, faith largely became believing statements to be true or false, intellectual assent, instead of giving people concrete practices so they could themselves know how to open up to faith, hold on to hope, and allow an infilling from another source, the source of love, not from intellect or intellectual understanding, but an infilling from the source of love. He says, contemplation opens our heads, our hearts, and our bodies to God's living presence. He quoted another fellow, a contemporary of his, who was talking about one of the Apostle Paul's letters, which we know as a book of First Corinthians. And this man said, what I heard Paul saying basically was that although he has preached, there was something more for the Corinthians than simply listening to preaching. It was their actual experience of believing, experience of believing. That got me to thinking, what is my experience of believing? For many years, I was taught things by, you know, good people, pastors, teachers, Bible study leaders, and things like that. I was taught different things, and I never questioned them, and there was no problem. I just, that's what I believed. But then once I started having a personal experience with God, once I started hearing from God himself, myself hearing from him, my experience trumped anything that somebody could teach me in a written book or in a message or something else, because it actually happened to me. It was my experience. Now, as we're talking about teaching with other people teaching it, in a spiritual realm, there are a couple of main kinds of teachings that we learn about in seminary. Now, this is going to be a little bit dry to you, but hang with me. Hopefully, I'm going to get to something that really has some meaning for you here in a minute. The two kinds of teaching are topical and expository. Topical teaching is when a teacher, pastor, preacher, teacher, Bible study leader, whatever, when somebody has a topic that they want to talk about, let's say love, then they will pick the topic, and then they'll go and find a bunch of verses in the Bible that, according to their understanding, go along with or prove the point that they're trying to make in teaching about their topic of love. Right? That's the main kind of teaching that people do today. Some years ago, though, almost everybody, Bible teachers, did what was called expository teaching, and some people still do that. Expository teaching is where there are two types of that. One is eisegesis, where you teach through a passage of Scripture, like a chapter of a book or something, and you make the Scripture say what you want it to say, (laughs) or exegesis, where you teach and you explain different ways that people have understood this over the years, and you let the listener listen to the Holy Spirit and determine from God himself what the passage actually means. So, 
I don't really consider myself a preacher anymore. I used to. Most people think of preaching as somebody preaching at you, saying, well, all right, we got sin right here in River City. You got a problem. God's not pleased with you. Bad things are going to happen unless you change this. So here's what you need to do. This is right. This is wrong. Here are the consequences. This is what you need to do to change. We process all of that through our intellect, and we either agree or disagree. Now, the word preach comes from a Greek word that actually means to proclaim what is true and has always been true, the good news. Teaching is different to me than just telling people what to believe. Instead of calling myself a teacher anymore, I like to call myself a facilitator because what I like to do is to take Scripture. I do use Scripture a lot, and I also take personal experiences and things like that. I present them to people, and then I say, okay, tell me, how do you perceive this? What does it mean to you? What does your experience show this to be? I want to facilitate a discussion where we'll be willing to challenge assumptions that we've already had or that somebody else has, and we'll be willing to look at things with fresh eyes, as Jesus said, see things with our inner eye, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, and not just go along with what somebody else says or writes or teaches that something is true and we ought to believe it that way. So what I'm talking about is hearing from God ourselves. That's the goal of my teaching, of my life, of of all the ministry that I do, of helping all of you learn how to experientially hear from God yourself, because he's the real source. (laughs) He's the one who has all the answers. He's the one who knows what Scripture means according to him. And when we hear from him and we have an experience that confirms that what we're hearing is true, that's always going to trump somebody's argument about something intellectually. If you know something's true, like if my friend knows that teaching how to read using flashcards, if you know that that works and you've tried something before and you know it doesn't work, you've got that experience. So no matter who you go to hear in a lecture or who comes in as the new principal of the school or on the administration or whatever and says, no, that doesn't work. We're going to do this because it's better. You know that that's not true. Experience always trumps intellectual knowledge. Of course, we can interpret experiences different ways too. That's another thing. I'm going to teach through a little bit today the first five or six verses of the first chapter of Colossians. Colossae was an area in the Middle East where a guy by the name of Epaphras went, started a church and taught them. Then Paul came along later, ministered to them, and then he wrote this letter to them. So here's what he says in Colossians 1. I'm primarily using the Passion Translation, but I'll also use some from the mirror. He says, my name is Paul, and this is how people started letters back in those days in that culture. We will start a letter and say, dear so-and-so, and then we'll sign at the end, sincerely yours, Paul, or whatever. In that day, they started out the letters with their name. He says, my name is Paul, and I have been chosen by Jesus Christ to be his apostle by the calling and destined purpose of God. And he says that for a reason, I'm confident, because there are two ways to become a leader in ministry. I mean, today, most people, most pastors or teachers get ordained or get a teaching certificate or a license to preach or ordination. It comes through a committee 
or through an institution, a denomination, or a Bible college, or something like that. And it's a group of people, well-meaning people, who have their criteria that they go through and their way to evaluate somebody as to whether or not this committee thinks that they are qualified to teach the Word of God and to minister to people. Well, Paul makes it very clear. He said, Ah, no, not me. He was, if you will, ordained like that before in the Jewish religion as a Pharisee. But then he had an experience that trumped everything he was learned before. And he was actually chosen personally by Jesus Christ to be his apostle. He tells us in Galatians 1, verses 15 and 16, he said, God was pleased to reveal Christ in me so that I could go and reveal Christ in the Gentiles. And he said, God showed me that he had set me apart to be an apostle from before my birth or at birth. So this, he was chosen by God, not by a group of people. So he had that experience that trumped an intellectual thing. He said, my colleague Timothy and I send this letter to all the holy believers who have been united to Jesus as beloved followers of the Messiah. He says, may God our true Father, release upon your lives the riches of his grace and heavenly peace through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Anointed One. Now, whenever the Apostle Paul wrote a letter that became a book in the New Testament, he wrote 13 of them, he started them all off in the first one, two, or three verses or so by mentioning God the Father and Jesus the Son. And anytime he just used the word God, he meant God the Father. Anytime he used the word Lord, he was referring to Jesus Christ. And he started every one of those 13 letters or books and ended them with some form of grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've learned experientially that it's impossible to have peace, to be at peace with something, if I don't have and understand and grasp and experience grace. Grace has multiple definitions. It's like a multifaceted diamond that you look at it in all different ways to look at it, and it looks a little bit differently. There are a lot of definitions of grace, but one of them is that grace means that you absolutely know to the core of your being that God, as a free gift, has included you, loves you, is delighted in you, has saved you from your own self-destruction, has included you in his family, and forgiven all of your sins, all of those different things. That's in part what grace is. Now, until you know that God has already done that for you, that he did it, it wasn't your doing, because if you think it's your doing, you're going to wonder, well, did I do it right or whatever. Once you know that he did it and it's already a done deal, and it's there forever, it won't change, only then can you experience true peace with God. Because if you don't have that experience that God loves you unconditionally, always has and always will, and has always included you and likes you and loves you and has taken care of all of your bad things, you're never going to have peace. You're going to wonder, uh-oh, have I done something today that made God mad at me? Have I lost my salvation or whatever? Grace and peace. All right. He says, every time we pray for you, this church in uh, Colossae, he says, our hearts overflow 
with thanksgiving to Father God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the mirror says it this way, together with our Lord Jesus Christ, we enjoy a common origin in the Father. I've learned that that's a great way to pray for people. You know, people, uh, I had somebody today say, hey, would you pray for me about this or that or whatever? And many times we think, well, praying means, well, pray that I'll get this job or pray that I won't get sick or pray that I'll be healed or pray that my kids will do this or that or whatever. And certainly it's fine to pray for those things, but it's extremely important that anytime we pray for somebody else, that we thank God for that person, that we thank God that he loves them just as much as he loves us or anybody else, that we thank God that he's included them, that we thank God that he chose them, just like us and everybody else before the beginning of time. We thank God that he's forgiven all their sins, that they're in his family, that he's accepted them and included them. And once see, when we know that, we can thank God and our hearts will overflow with thanksgiving for not only for who God is, but for who the other person is and for what he's already done with them. That changes how we see other people, how we think about them, and of course, how we pray for them. Now, in verse four, he says, we have heard of your devoted lives of faith in Christ Jesus and your tender love toward all his holy believers. Many times we hear about tough love, and there is a kind of tough love where we have to set boundaries and things like that. But God's love is always tender. God is tender. He's gentle. He's not harsh. So sometimes I've even had people say to me, well, I love you, but I don't like you very much, or I'll never be able to forget how you hurt me with this or that or whatever. Now, tender love is a totally different ballgame. We think about a mother with their baby, very tender love. You know, they would never hurt that baby as long as they're in their right mind, of course. But tender love is agape. It's always wanting what's best for the other person, always taking care of them, being willing to sacrifice and give up your time and effort and money or whatever, as parents do with little kids, with babies, certainly being tender towards them, tender towards everyone. So that's something for me that I have to look at and not beat myself up about. And certainly God never chastises me or condemns me or shames me if I don't act tenderly towards people. But what I want to do, my desire is to love people tenderly and not be harsh or condemning or shaming to anyone, just as God loves me tenderly. All right, here's verse five. Paul says, your faith and love rise within you as you access all the treasures of your inheritance, which are stored up for you in the heavenly realm. Now, that verse and many others tell us that we already have all the treasures of God. They're already ours. They're stored up for us in the heavenly realm. In Ephesians 1, we're told that God has lavished by his grace all the heavenly treasures, all the riches of heaven on us already, even before the beginning of time. We're told other places in the New Testament. For example, in 2 Peter 1, he says, we've already been given everything we need for life and godly living. We have all the treasures of the heavenly realms already. 
And Paul says here, your faith and love rise within you as you access those treasures. Well, where is the heavenly realm? Many of us have thought and been taught for a long time, well, that's heaven. That's when you die and when you get to heaven, then you'll get all those treasures. No, heaven is here and now. Heaven is just another dimension. It's the dimension, it's the unseen dimension, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4.18. It's the unseen and eternal, real dimension, as opposed to what we can see, but it's not eternal, doesn't last, and won't be there very long after whatever period of time it's there right now. Actually, heaven, the eternal realm, the kingdom of God in Christ, is all around us right now. It's what quantum scientists, quantum physicists initially called the ether. They call it the matrix. They'll call it the source. They'll call it dark matter. It's the space that's in between everything. Well, we know now there is no space in between everything. There's something that's there. And that something that's there all around us that we can't see is the heavenly realm. And it's possible for us to live in that realm and access things that are in that realm right now. It's not only possible, but that's what God wants us to do. Access all the treasures of our inheritance that are already stored up in the heavenly realm. We want to access those and bring them out from within us, from the unseen world, into what we're doing every day in the seen world. There's a great quote I heard the other day. It says, don't spend time trying to get what you already have and don't spend time trying to be who you already are. What a waste of time and how draining it is to try to get what you already have and be who you already are. All right. He says, the revelation of the true gospel, the gospel of grace is as real today, he's writing to this church, as the day you first heard of our glorious hope. Now that you have believed in the truth of the gospel, the true gospel, the gospel of grace. The mirror says it this way, heaven, the spiritual realm, is the limitless reservoir of your expectation. The announcement of the goodness of God is not far-fetched or too good to be true. The word you heard or experienced is absolutely true. Now, I want to focus in for a little bit before we finish on what Paul calls the true gospel or the gospel of grace. When the Apostle Paul, again, who'd written two-thirds of the New Testament and had started different church and gone on three missionary journeys and who Jesus took up to heaven himself, up to heaven, took him into the spiritual realm showed him what was really true, things that Paul said that he didn't have human words to convey. When he was about ready to die, he knew that he wasn't going to live very long, and he was going to Rome where he would be put in prison and eventually killed. He got together the leaders of the church in Ephesus, and he spoke to them one last time here in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. And he's talking about the different things that have happened and accomplishments and trials and stuff like that. And he said, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. What I count important is that I may finish my race, his life, with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel is the grace of God, the grace of God in action. 
No grace, no gospel. The gospel is the good news of what God has already done by his grace for all of us, which he did before he created anything, and then it was manifested in time and space with Jesus' finished work at the cross. Paul, who is called the apostle of grace, says the gospel is the grace of God. Jesus himself taught that to Paul. Paul had no idea about that from what he'd learned in the Jewish religion and in his time as a Pharisee. He had an experience with Jesus. Jesus appeared to him, and then Jesus took him into the Arabian desert for 13 years and taught him personally. This was after Jesus had died and gone back to heaven. Jesus came and did that, and Paul had this experience of being with Jesus, and Jesus showing him firsthand and taking him to heaven, the spiritual realm, and showing him what the gospel is. It is the grace of God. So he had an experience of knowing what the grace of God is. It's the gospel. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.8, It was only through the wonderful grace of God that we were able to believe in Jesus. Nothing we did or nothing we ever could do could ever earn this salvation, for it was the gracious gift from God that brought us to Christ. Grace is a total gift. There's nothing we can do to earn grace, to get grace, or to keep grace. Then Paul said to the church in Galatia, in Galatians 1, verses 6 to 7, he'd started this church. He taught them the grace of God. Then he left, went on to some other places, and some people he called Judaizers came in and said, yeah, yeah, well, Jesus, Jesus is fine, but you also have to keep all these rules. You have to do all the Jewish law, all these different stuff. And Paul heard about it, and he writes to him, and he says, I am astonished that you're quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Paul made it very clear in this passage and in other places that anything different, even though it calls itself a gospel, any teaching that you get, any intellectual thing, written words or teaching or whatever, that says it's the gospel but is not total pure grace, is a different gospel, which he says is really no gospel at all. The gospel is total pure grace of what God has already done for everyone. God's unconditional love and inclusion and acceptance and forgiveness of sins and grace for everyone. Anything else is a different gospel. It's really no gospel at all. And Paul says, I'm astonished that you wouldn't hang with that which you experienced, and that you would go and let people tell you intellectually, well, no, there's other things you got to do. But that happens to us today, too, doesn't it? He said, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. How do we pervert the gospel of Christ? Well, there's a thing that behavioral scientists call cognitive dissonance. That's where we hear two opposing things, and we know cognitively, we know in our mind, they can't both be true. Like if somebody says, this microphone is blue, and somebody else says, no, it's obviously white, well, we know both of those can't be true. Now, we may hear those two conflicting views from people with a lot of letters after their name and titles and things like that. But we know they can't both be true. 
Well, that's what was happening to this church in Galatia, and that's what unfortunately happens today, too. People say, you hear, God is love, grace is free, God loves everyone, Jesus is the Savior of everyone, God is the Father of all. You hear that truth, and then you'll turn around and hear this from the same person saying, but God's love has a limit, but God's love is not for those people, but God didn't include these people. See, those are two opposing things, and that causes a cognitive dissonance with us. And many times we've been taught, unfortunately, in religion, well, don't question that because God's ways are higher than ours, and we just don't understand it. Well, no, questions are good. We need to question those things because they can't both be true. And many times religion tries to protect God's image by saying, well, yes, you can be totally good and pure love and still do bad things to people if they tick you off because, just because. Now, Paul says, I'm astonished that you're believing those things. He says, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Don't listen to that kind of stuff. So as I finish up today, I want to talk again just a little bit more about this experience trumping intellectual knowledge. What I hope you will do and what God I know is doing with me and with lots of people is to listen to him. Have a personal experience with God. Let him show you what he wants you to know, what he wants to teach you, and experience it personally with him, and then go with what he says. Take sides with him. Experience with God always trumps intellectual knowledge. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. I'll see you next time on Grace to All with Paul Gray. Thank you for listening to Grace to All. For more about us, how we can serve you, and our special guest, please visit www.gracewithpaulgray.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode and to join our Facebook group, Grace to All, where you'll be inspired and awakened to more truth that you can handle.